in my army of the Lord fatigues today. There's a brother in the second service that sells these. I'll be matching with him today. 838 Apparel, if you want to check it on on Facebook. But how many are happy to be in the army of the Lord fighting against the devil today? Amen. What a testimony to that song being what we're leading into today. Because open up with me to Revelation chapter uh, 8, verse 6. Because the conclusion of today's message, I'll just jump ahead because that worship song was so powerful. The conclusion of today's message is that you better fight the devil on this earth while you have the chance to. Because if you are not in the will of God being raptured with the church and Satan begins to come in the judgments of God, he's going to be whooping your butt. You're going to be losing the battle. So now is the time to whoop devil butt. This is a whoop devil butt generation. A whoop devil butt generation. Put a little 70s funk on it. There was a prophet named Kim Clement, and I just remember him singing that song. This is a whoop, devil butt generation. Come on. And I got hyped when I was a young man, and I'm like, yes, I want to whoop the devil's butt. I want to beat up on him because that's our true enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not people. The people are the prize that the two sides are fighting over. And God has given us a choice. Do we want to be the trophies of his grace or do we want to be the pawns of the devil? And so the, the, the souls of humanity is what's at stake in this battle. It's not that good and evil are equal powers fighting against each other. Man, God already had this thing wrapped up from the very beginning. He could have stomped out Satan and the whole world and sent Adam and Eve to hell and ended the whole thing right there. But he created us with choice, with free will. Choose you this day who you will serve. Joshua said as well. It's reiterated all throughout the scriptures. And so it's not that God is wrestling with the devil like it's a WWE fight. Oh, Jesus got the devil in a headlock, but the headlock doesn't reverse and then body slams Jesus. Oh, who's going to win? No, Jesus has always been the victor. God is over all evil. He stands in control of this universe. Can I hear an amen to that? We're going to hear today in the scriptures that when he cast out Satan, it was like lightning. Boom, done, over. That's it, folks. But the battle rages on because men and women, humanity is at stake. And it's our wills that God will not violate. That's the principle. It was his will to give us a will. So it's not like sometimes people say, oh, do you Christians believe that your free will is more powerful than God, that he has to wait for your choice to be made? No, God already knows the choices we're going to make, by the way. And so our will is not more powerful than God, but it was God's will that gave us a will. Does everybody get that? That's deep. You need to get that. It was God's will to give you a will. It was his choice to give you a choice. And so what's playing out right now is the battle for humanity, and you have to answer answer the question, whose side of the war are you going to be on? I'm on the winning side. Can I hear an amen? I'm on the shouting side of Calvary waiting for the rapture. I've read the end of the book. I know what happens. I know where I'm going to be. Are you going to be on the winning side? 
Amen. Because according to our belief here, and there are different beliefs of how this plays out, but as you're opening with me to Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, as we're looking to the wonderful chart of the end times, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has already been raptured, that we are not present during these times. We've gone through the seven seals being opened by the Lamb. There has been the sealing of the 144,000. And the reason why I believe that's so specific is because God is keeping his promise to each of the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And I will be making the argument today that by the time we get to the trumpets, there are probably no other believers on the planet Earth other than the 144,000. And I'll make an argument for that in just a moment. But these are some trying times to be on the earth. But I believe God has not predestined us for wrath, but he's predestined us for fellowship and for glory and for good things. And so we are in the presence of the Lord. We're in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're receiving receiving our rewards. And now we get to these trumpets. And these trumpets are going to begin to bring a massive judgment upon the earth. How many are ready for the trumpets? Say amen. Amen. So let's go to Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, and this will have to be a two-parter because there is a long interlude of a lot of symbols. As a matter of fact, the most symbols will be brought up between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, so I will need an entire message next week by God's grace to go through all those symbols to give you my best understanding and then to hear that seventh trumpet blast. Let's. Uh, I'm going to refresh this real quick. Can you hit enter for me back there, please, brother, because I added some goodies. It's something, man, because I'm back there. I'm listening to the worship. I'm worshiping with you guys. And then I start changing and rearranging the message. And I'm like, Lord, what's going on? That's it. Refresh one more time. If not, we'll have to get my laptop because sometimes it doesn't refresh fast enough. Ah, it's not here. Will one of the brothers get a laptop for me? John, can I toss you my key? Thank you, sir. So for whatever reason, I, I changed some things, and it's not up here. But I like to add things as the Lord has given it to me. And as I said, when I was back there today, I'm like, Lord, this is going to be real embarrassing for me if you keep changing this on me because uh, I have a whole message planned on how I understand this. And the Lord almost flipped the whole thing on me right back there. And how many know God loves to do things like that? He, he, will, he, will, he will test singers and worship leaders, Bible study leaders. Thank you, sir. Have you ever been about ready to lead a Bible study, some of you Bible study leaders? And God just flipped the whole script on you and say, I want you to go in this different direction. And you're like, God, but I didn't study anything about that. And he's like, it's okay, I got you. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, students, we don't study uh, before the test. And then at the test, we then say, oh, Jesus, give me the answers, you know. Even Bible college students try that, so please don't do that. I have a funny story about me doing that as a pastor, trying to get my CDL so I could drive the church bus. Um, should I just tell that story? Let me just tell this interlude as I get my laptop set up. So I, I was uh, a pastor, and I am a pastor who always serves, fills in the blanks, whatever needs to be done, boom, I'm going to do it. If something didn't happen today from a maintenance team, I'm coming, I'm shoveling. You know, I'm doing whatever like when it snowed the other time. And so it was just you know, practical for me to want to help out with the transportation when we were ministering in New Orleans because most of our folks were getting bussed in, coming through the church bus and, and vans. And we realized, like, man, we need more buses. We need, need more drivers. And drivers were getting expensive to drive our, our buses. So I had a, a school bus that we had bought, and then this person would charge me every day that we had church that we needed that bus to go out. So it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, youth group, etc. So I said, look, let's get another bus, and then 
then I'll get my CDL, and then I'll make sure I can drive the times where I don't need the two buses, where I only need the one on Wednesday, where I only need the one on Friday. I'll drive and then preach and do whatever. And so I went and picked it up in Mississippi, you know, had my friend drive back the car. I'm driving the bus, and I don't have a CDL, okay? And this is where you got to say, Lord, have mercy on my pastor. So I could have gotten pulled over and gotten some trouble. Woo! I could have been locked up. They won't let me out. No, they won't let me out. I'm locked up. Where's pastor today? Oh, he's locked up. What was he doing? Driving a bus without a CDL in Mississippi? So anyways, so I just naively think to myself, I'm smart. I can go take the test right now. I didn't even study. I already have the bus. I pull up to the, you know, to the DMV, and I'm like, can I please have the test to take the CDL license, you know? And they're like, okay, here it is. And then when I opened it up, it was like really big. It was like more than just a few questions. I thought it was going to say something like, how do you stop the bus? And what do you do when you have kids making noise on the bus? Or how do you put the stop sign out? Because you know how buses have the stop signs that come out. So about 50 questions in, I realized that this was not going good for me, you know. So, so I, hand it, I hand it back to her, and I'm like, well, I think I need to do this over again. And she's like, yeah, here's the study book. Come back when you're ready. And then this is, this is the time I'm not proud of myself. This is where some of the young people really listening closely right now, because I'm going to tell on myself, I can tell some of you are ready, because I've rebuked you so much for your mess, and you're like, Pastor, tell me what your mess is. I want to know now, Pastor, what this is, because this is embarrassing for you. Tell me what it was. This is the only time that I have blatantly lied as a pastor. By God's grace, if I have ever said anything untrue, it was not meant to be untrue. This was a blatant lie. She looks at me, and she goes, and you didn't drive that bus here, did you? And some of you have heard this story. You know the story. And, I'm, and see, I had, I had been bringing homeless people into my house. And one of the homeless dudes had taken this trip with me. And somebody from the church was driving back my, my, my vehicle. And so I pointed to the homeless dude that I had with me. And I go, no, he's the bus driver. Oh, Lord, have mercy, Jesus. If I would have died that day, he would have said, depart from me, for I do not know you, you liar. You liar. So uh, she's like, okay, well, he better drive out because I'm watching him. So, so I go out to the bus, and you guys have heard the story. I go out to the bus, and I'm like, Tyrone, listen to me, man. You got to drive this bus. Tyrone's like, Pastor, I don't even got a license. I don't know how to drive no bus. I'm like, listen, T, you driving the bus off the property. And I'm like sitting next to him. I'm like, you know, trying to turn it on. I don't know. It's kind of funny. I'm like, look, put it in gear. Drive this bus. Come on, Pastor, man. We all going to get arrested, Pastor. We all going. I'm like, drive the bus, Tyrone. Get us out of here. And it's like, we get out of there. We pull over to the side. He's like, Pastor, you are crazy, man. I'm like, listen, forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned and I am a sinner. I am in need of your grace, oh, Lord. If I ever needed you, tis it now, Lord. And I repented of my sins. Went back and took the test. Praise God and graduated and got a CDL. And then I was taught by the Lord never to lie again. And so some of you are just ashamed. You're never coming back. You're ashamed of me. I know. I know. I've let you down. Oh, man, where was I going with that? Why did I even tell a story about, about that? Oh, about getting the laptop. Yes. 
Oh, I know why. Now I know why. Because I need it because the notes were changed last minute and we shouldn't play on the Lord's grace to do stuff last minute. That's what it was. Amen. So it took a, took a long way to get back there, but we're here now. Thank you, Jesus. All right. You all blessed to be in church this morning? All right. That was about the only time you're going to laugh today in church uh, because you're about ready to hear about the wrath of God. You guys ready for it to get serious? Okay, that was good for us. Now look at here, Revelation chapter 8, verse 6, learning about the seven trumpets. going to be a two-part message. We're going to hit on the six today. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass were burned up. How many know that's hell on earth right there? So people who say to you, oh, this is hell, it's like, no, you haven't seen hell on earth. Hell on earth is a coming. It's coming your way, and you'll know when it's here, but it's going to be something that you're not going to be able to do anything about. It is true we see parts of hell on earth, murder, lying, stealing, these kinds of things are, are the things of the enemy, and they're on earth, but we are to be bringing the kingdom of God. Here now is the judgment of God. This is that judgment that cannot be stopped. There is no crying out for mercy. There's been times where, you know, the people of God were being judged, and there was a cry for mercy, and the land was spared. You can think of Jonah going to Nineveh. This is it. There is no more mercy on the land. It's done. And like I said, we'll get to a certain point where I don't believe anybody's even saved anymore other than the 144,000. So here we see that a third of the earth now is being burned up. Uh, now the second angel, verse 8, sounds his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown in to the sea. And once again, when we learn about my interpretive principles of revelation, what do I think this is? Do I think this is something symbolic of something else? No. I believe it's something like a huge mountain. That's what I believe. There's people who try to get deep on what these things are, but I believe that something like a mountain could be a asteroid, a meteor, something like that. Uh, you know, a comet comes crashing into the sea and a third of the sea turns into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, if you remember, one of the options that we had when we looked through the seals was to take all the seals, all the trumpets, and the bowls of wrath, the three sevenfold judgment of God, and to take them as cyclical, repeating in other words. And that was one of our options. And so what I wanted to do was show you in this chart, could we hit enter again? Otherwise, I'll just have to describe it to you. Thank you, sir. We'll see if it refreshes over time here. Man, you know what? Just open up a new window and try it there. If not, I have it in front of me. Just see if it, you know, that will help because it's uh, refreshed on my end. If you remember, and you can turn in your scripture to Revelation chapter uh, 8, verse 1. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 is where a third of, excuse me, uh, let's start in verse 9. Revelation chapter 8 verse 9, Revelation chapter 8 verse 9, that's what we just read. It says, a third of the living creatures die and the water is turned into blood. Now go to, we'll, go, we'll skip ahead here, to Revelation chapter 16 verse 4. Revelation chapter 16 verse 4. And I want you to see why I make the argument that they're not cyclical, uh, 
but that this is in fact uh, the, the exponential intensifying of God's judgment. And go up one, go up one verse rather, verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. So notice that now every living thing in the sea dies, and go back to Revelation chapter eight, verse eight, and notice here how much dies. It says a third. Everybody get that? So I have the chart here now of actually uh, the seals, the bowls, and, uh, excuse me, the seals, the trumpet, and the bowls. It's not appearing. Maybe just try another browser as well. It's just one of those things where I just have to, to give it to the folks. It was one of the things I felt God would give to me to share. And if you're getting it now, I still feel it's what the Lord wanted us to have. And so sometimes, even though we are pre-tribulation rapture folks, that means we believe all of this happens after the rapture, so we're pre-trib. It's the, the rapture happens pre all of the seals, all of the trumpets, and all of the, the bowls of wrath. There are still some in that camp of pre-tribulation that actually believe these are cyclical. So it doesn't necessarily tie you to a mid-trib rapture or a post-tribulation rapture. You can believe in the, the cyclical nature of these things and have any position on the rapture. But do you see why I believe that these are intensifying, but they're not the same thing? Because now we would have a contradiction. The contradiction would be that when the trumpet sounds, a third of the creatures die in the sea, but when the bowls come, the second bowl, all of the sea creatures die. Does everybody see that? So what's the, what's the most, most basic way to understand this is that they are happening uh, horizontally on a timeline, just like how we have here in, in the John Hagee uh, timeline that we have. We see that here come the seals, here come the trumpets, and then here comes the bowls. And we can see that there are similarities between, say, like we just gave the example, the second trumpet and the second bowl. And there's going to be other similarities that I'll get to in just a moment. But they are not the same thing. They are intensifying. And I also believe that's going to come in handy when we try to fit in the seven years of the 70th week of Daniel, which I'm going to get into by God's grace next week, because there is a time frame that we have here. And Daniel was so specific that Daniel prophesied when the Messiah would come in his generation. It would be 400, and I believe 39 years later. Does anybody want to check Daniel's prophecy? I think it's 439 years later. He named it to the year about when Jesus would come and what would happen in Jesus's ministry. And that's called the 69th week of Daniel. And so the 70th week of Daniel has happened between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And we believe that countdown of the last week of Daniel is the seven years of tribulation. And it's broken down. Why not just a week? Why not just take it literally? It's broken down into seven years, and a week is figurative of seven years because in the next chapter, as we will get to, the week is now said to have two parts, one, 1,200 and some days, whatever you know that number, exact number is, and then the other half. So what was Daniel's prophecy? 400 how many years? 39 or 69? Which one was it? No, no, no. What was Daniel's 400-year prophecy? Somebody look it up. No one's looking it up? No one's helping me? Who Googled it? Daniel's 400-year prophecy for the Messiah. It's going to be 439, 469, one of those uh, years. And I'll have it all together for you guys next week. Somebody get it for me. No, no, no. It's going to say it. You guys got to look for it. No one's finding it there? Let's see if I Google it faster than some of you guys. 
Daniel's 400-year prophecy. We're all going to Scholar Google University right now. 490 years. There we go. 490 years, and that makes sense because it's 70 times, 70 weeks times 7 is 490, yes. And then you minus the one week, 490. 483. Yeah, 483. And then it's uh, the time of his birth. So it's like 469, I believe, is where, or a little bit before that. There's, there's a way they break it down, and I'll have it all for us. And I'm sorry for getting into it today and not being able to lay out all the years. But the bottom line is Daniel laid it out perfectly to the time of when Christ would come. And then he left a gap of that week, and then that week is the end-time judgment. So if anybody wants to uh, look that up further and get ahead, go ahead and do so. Let's try to refresh this one more time here for me, please. And then if not, we'll just keep going, and I'll keep showing you some similarities. Thank you, Jesus, for testing me on this chart today. All right, now let's go here to the third angel, verse 10. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had turned bitter. And then now, let's compare that to the fourth bowl, uh, no, excuse me, the third bowl, go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 6, Revelation Chapter 16, verse 6. And see, notice here in the trumpet, the third trumpet, that it is uh, bitter waters. But what happens now, uh, start in verse 4. The third angel, chapter 16, poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became what? They became blood. So now it intensifies from the water just being bitter. And what does bitter waters remind us of? The bitter waters of Memra the time of Moses in the wilderness. So you can have bitter waters from salt and different things. And some might even try to stretch and say, well, blood in the water would be bitter. But notice it doesn't say blood in the trumpet that we just listened to. It's now blood in the bowl. And so what do I believe is happening? There's an intensification. The trumpets are doing similar things as the bowls, but by the time we get to the bowls, it's more intense. At the time of the trumpets, it's bitter water. It could be more salt content, these different kinds of things. But by the time we get to the third angel, it is now the bitter water, excuse me, it is now the blood-stained waters that are being judged upon the earth. And that is also a a flashback to Moses, okay? And if you even think about the time of Moses, they kind of build up. And then, you know, God, um, you know, Pharaoh lets God's people go. But here we see that as each set of seven is coming, they're not letting uh, God change their heart. They're not going with the things of God. Their hearts are actually becoming harder. And that's why I believe in just a few moments we'll see, other than the 144,000, I don't think anybody else is really saved at this point. As I watched, verse 13, I heard an angel that was flying in midair, Oop, I forgot the fourth angel, excuse me. A fourth angel sounded, verse 17, his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned black, a third of the day was without light, and a third of the night. Also a third of the night, because we know we get that from the reflection of the sun on the moon. Now here's a question that often comes up when we get to here, is that people now want to get all scientific and think, oh, the Bible, we can't trust it, because how in the world... Could a third of the stars be stuck black, and then we instantly get... 
the, you know, the inside of that. Because how many know it takes time for the, the, the light to travel? And so in other words, if we saw a star go black today, that would mean something happened millions of years ago. How many know that? Or heard things like that. And so whenever we see starlight, that is the light that we've seen from the past. That that has come from the past and that it's taken light years to get to us. And so now people ask the question, how can this be so? Now we could just punt and just go miracle and that's okay because we believe in the God of miracles. How many believe in God of miracles? God can walk on water because God created water and he can decide what he wants to do with water. And I don't think punting to miracles is, is always a bad thing because we believe in the code of humanity, the coder can do what he wants without violating his laws because remember, you still can't walk on water naturally. Peter tried for a little bit and then he fell because naturally you can't. So it's not like uh, God is making a square circle where he is saying Jesus can walk on water and violate the law of mass on top of the water, you know, and how, how much of buoyancy it has, and then, you know, somebody else can't. So he's not giving special permission for somebody to violate a law. That's not true. What God is doing is allowing the law to be different at different times because what is and what are the laws of nature except the code of God? upon our earth. Does everybody understand that? What, what or who, should we say, sets the speed of light? Who sets the speed of light? God does. Who sets the laws of gravity? God. Who sets the laws of conservation of energy and E equals MC squared? Who is the one who wrote those things into the code of our universe? Our God. And this is why I always say back to the atheist, if you were coding a game right now, could you code a game that I fly like Superman? Yes, have you violated the codes of your game by letting me fly like Superman? No, you haven't violated the codes. You just put in the code when Joe's in the game, you know, like uh, Neo from Matrix, he gets to fly. How many remember Matrix, right? Or Superman. So it's that person gets to do that. No violation, no square circles, no logical contradictions. This is what we call not just supernatural, but you can look up the philosophy term, the philosophical term, supra supranatural, and that means something over nature intervening into nature. And I do believe supernatural is a great way to understand things, but I think supra is actually a more correct term to know what miracles are in the natural world. It's not that it's something violating laws, which sometimes we incorporate into the term supernatural. The supranatural term helps you understand that it's a law above our law intervening within the laws. So there are no contradictions. It's just the coder intervening different codes into his own system. And I think that video game or CGI or movie understanding really helps us because God is doing that in this world. As we play in a virtual world, this is God's virtual world. The actual world is where this world came from. Can I hear an amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where was he before this world? He was in his 
this world. So oftentimes we play video games or watch movies, and it feels like we take a step into that fictional world, that world that's different than our world. So we take a step into it, and then after the movie, after the video game, after you take off the virtual reality glasses, you step back into your world. But how many know God can step out of this world back into his world and come into our world and come out of our world in the sense of showing his code, his plan, his will. Can I hear an amen? A lot of things said there. So I can just, I could punt, miracle, and that's okay. But I also think there's something scientific here. There's also something scientific. In Starlight in Time, I don't have the Christian author's name right off the the top here, but if you get the book Starlight in Time, one of our Christian astrophysicists writes a book and helps us understand starlight in time. And one of the things that all scientists agree on is that the speed of light can fluctuate in matter in space. So when we talk about space-time, we're talking about the time that it takes matter to travel across that space. We call it space-time. And we know that light travels faster than matter. It travels faster than us trying to go across space and time. And so what they have as a problem is when they go to the Big Bang, and we always say we know who banged it. Amen. You know, I believe in the Big Bang too. God said, let there be light and what? Bang, it happened. There we go. So we can explain why something comes from something. They have to try to explain why something came from nothing. How many would rather defend the point something coming from something? The universe, a something coming from the something God. They have to explain where the universe, something came from nothing. Okay? So what we can explain is where they come into a problem and a contradiction. The Big Bang and its time frame from what they think to the singularity to where we are now in time is actually shorter and they'll talk about this, then the actual size of our universe. There is a discrepancy from how big our universe is as they measure it to the best of their knowledge. Let's say they believe it's something like 16 billion light years across. But then when they do their math, they come to the starting point of the singularity around the starting point being 13 billion years. So they believe it's 16 billion years long. It's, it's, that's how long light would take to go from a center point to the outer edges, 16 billion years. But they can only come up with a starting point of 13 billion, year, 13 billion years. Is everybody tracking with me? This is what their problem is. And so then what they say is that if space is folded on itself, that light can cross over. And that if space is expanding, the rate of the speed of light can also change because the expansion of space is happening. It is like oscillating like a balloon. So in other words, if I draw, let's say I blow up a balloon. I'll get a little scientific. Is that okay if your pastor tries a little bit? Be a little Neil deGrasse Tyson up in here. Okay, Michio Kaku. Okay, so so you blow up a, uh, excuse me, you start with an unblowed up balloon and you put two dots on it. So right, you got a little balloon and you put two dots on it and they're right next to each other. What's going to happen as you begin to blow up that balloon? What are those dots going to begin to do? They're going to begin to expand. And so that's how they answer for the problem that they have for the two dates not lining up, that the expansion of the universe changed the rate of the speed of light. Now, how many know the Scripture says that God stretched forth the heavens? Oh, y'all just learned something. You better take that to science class. See, our Bible says multiple times that God stretched forth the heavens. 
So would that explain their problem? Absolutely. And then it explains our problem, which is how are we defending a less than 10,000-year-old universe, and yet we know if we were to shoot a beam of light, it would take the six, uh, 13 billion, excuse me, in this example, the 16 billion years. We agree. Like, we shoot a beam of light from anywhere in the center of the universe to go to the outskirts. Christians, we believe this. You know, Christian astrophysicists actually do the same kind of math. The non-Christian astrophysicists are. How many of you are Christians doing the same kind of work the non-Christian is? How many know we don't have to be conspiratorial and say the math is wrong? So we agree with them that if you shoot a beam of light from anywhere in the center to find the edge of the universe, yeah, it's going to take about that 16 billion years. So then how do we explain a creation of 10,000 years? This is, you know, this is only 10,000 years old. So then once again, the Christians can now punt to miracles, and they now can say, which I have toyed with the idea, and sometimes I even preach it here to give you guys an option to hold on to this, is I say when God created man and woman in the Garden of Eden, did he create babies or did he create adults? Did he start with seeds of trees or did he give them trees? So if he was going to start with the universe, is he going to start with the, thir- uh, the 16 billion of, of expansion or is he going to start with the beginning of a full-framed universe just like a mature tree, just like there's going to be a mature star and there's going to be mature distance and there's going to be mature uh, planets, etc. Or, and then this is where my friend, his last name is Humphreys, the book that I have, Starlight and Time, he said that God stretching forth the heavens could have done it multiple times and had stretched forth those things that once were close to us after the fall. The Bible starts saying he stretches it and those are the dimensions that we now have because he stretched them from the time frame of the Bible. And so while we would have been, let's say, looking at the stars early on, you would have seen the expansion if you could have measured it because God was expanding the heavens. Both are accurate to the Bible or both can be used. One, God creates a full-framed universe. Boom, there it is. Another one is that from the fall, God is expanding the universe, and that is why when space expands, light travels faster, and these things are way out there. Now, going back to this simple thing, here comes the darkness. Here comes these issues with these stars that are, you know, billions of light years away. Which way are you going to go with it? Are you going to say it's just a miracle? God just turns them off and then shrinks back the heavens or somehow does a miracle so we can actually see the lights coming off? Or does he do something in the heavens? As the Bible literally says, there will be signs in the heavens and things down below, right, wonders down below. Is everybody tracking with me? And we actually see the opposite of the great expansion. We see the great coming together of the universe. Who knows? Wouldn't that be something? You're looking out at the stars of the sky, and it, it's kind of like sometimes you see in those sci-fi movies like a Star Trek or something where they travel through time, and the stars all just like come at them. It's like whoosh, you know? Like imagine looking up at the stars of the sky, and it looks as if that balloon is deflating right in front of you. Whoosh, and the universe comes in, and the stars start turning off as they're doing that. God could do both. He can do it just as a miracle, still maintaining the laws of the nature and just supersede them for a time. Or God can use the laws of the nature and just bring back in the, the, uh, the space. Now, once again, people say, oh, that's just so convenient that you believe everything's going to suck back in. Read about how this universe ends by scientists. If the universe, they say, was expanded, then what's going to happen? 
the, the inflation is now going to happen. And so they believe that the universe is going to have a heat death and enclose on itself. So you see, the scientists even understand that all the energy, thank you, finally got it up there, praise God. Let's give it up for the sound booth who didn't give up on that, amen? So, so isn't this something that just, just think about this, how you can preach the gospel using science without having to look like an Oompa Loompa. And once again, miracles don't make us Oompa Loompas. Uh, it's just something that you can enjoy with those who enjoy science, and you can study these things. And, you know, never go beyond your depth. I'm not trying to go beyond my depth. I'm just explaining what I've seen, just like as if you had, you know, watched a Discovery show and we were talking at lunch or something. These are the, the, the basic outlines. You want to go more in depth, you can. So understand this. They, under, they believe that there's a difference between origin and expansion, and they have to say it's the stretching of the space-time. We have the same issue as they do. How do we resolve it? We resolve it by God stretching forth the heavens. They have to just say that space has expanded and has contracted at different times. It just does it. That's what they have to say. And that's kind of where they punt all the time. Isn't that their little miracle? You know, like one, like one atheist said, I can debate all day long on how the universe is made by all the natural laws. Just give me the universe and gravity and all of those things and I can explain the rest. And then the guy caught him and he said, so to explain the universe, all you need is the start of the universe and laws. That's all you need. How about you try this? Start without the laws, start without the universe, then explain the universe. It's the old joke about the devil talking to Jesus. I can make mankind better than you. Let me give it a try. And, and Jesus goes, go ahead, start by making your own dirt. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. How can the devil bring anything out into existence, right? So when we're talking the kind of science talk with folks, isn't it something that we understand that there are different time rates? We get it. There looks like a different time rate between us and the expansion of the universe. They get it, and, they, and, and, and the same math is both for Christians and non-Christians. How do we explain it? Through the expansion and the stretching forth of the heavens. They understand that the universe is expanding, that we are, we are going towards a heat death and then an implosion. Why is that going to happen? It's because God has said, let there be light, and he has never said stop until this point. Woo, some of y'all didn't get that. When he said, let there be light, did he turn it off? No, when does he start turning it off? This is the first time you start seeing the sun getting turned off. Because remember, it needs energy. It needs a, a, a force. The, you know, the, the force of energy in the stars and in the universe has a limit. And that is why one of the laws of thermodynamics is that you can't put more energy in naturally, and that energy will always lead towards decay. It will always end with no energy. If you're not putting any energy into something, isn't it eventually going to end? Like if you heat up that boiling water and then you shut off the heat, what happens? It goes down. So Jesus said, let there be light, and then what does he say there now? No more light. Shut it off. And now we can explain it both ways. I love it that we can do it both ways. We can say God is the God of miracles. He can just shut off stuff, bring it all together. He can do however he wants. And I just, and once again, and I explain that to them in the sense of when I start a video game and I start playing it, I trust that the maker is going to have a video game that makes sense and that they do what they want to do. So I got to figure it out. I'm, in other words, I'm not going to play the video game and try to win by beating the maker of the video game. What I'm going to do is beat the, the video game by understanding the rules the 
maker made and by those rules beat the video game. And so, in other words, God could do whatever he wants. It doesn't change anything. Let's just say it all was a miracle, and we, we can't explain it scientifically. God's just going to shut off lights, burn up sun, bring in stars, and it's all just going to happen. You're going to have to deal with it. And let's say you don't like it. What have you changed? <laughs> Nothing. You haven't changed anything. So you're just, oh, I don't, I don't like that he did that. Well, you're still in the dark earth. <laughs> it's still dark now a third of the day. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you now have a problem. You haven't changed anything. And so we're not trying to convince them, in other words, but the Bible does say to have an answer. And I love that we can point to these things because we can always show them. Where did the scientific method come from? The modern age of enlightenment from Christians. Francis Bacon, not the bacon you had this morning, but the man Francis Bacon was a Christian. And what did they consider science? Thinking the thoughts of God. Thinking the thoughts of God. God, show me your thoughts of natural world and order. Show me those things, God. And that's why I always tend to look towards these kinds of events. Not, you know, if it's a miracle like the Red Sea, I don't look at that like, you know, a hurricane just came at that time and parted the waters. Because, you know, it wouldn't make sense. Like, how did they go on dry land and then how did it go away at that particular time? You know, could, could God do all of those kinds of things in those moments? Yes. But I think when we're learning miracles, the Bible's pretty clear that, you know, Moses stretches his hand, the fire, you know, um, you know, the power of God does something there as the, as the uh, fire keeps off the enemy. You know, I believe that's a miracle. But when we hear about things like this, where we're not necessarily hearing the context of miracles, we're just hearing that God is doing certain things, reminiscent of the created order, I take these that we could understand them scientifically. In other words, if you were here that day and you had the Hubble telescope, you now would be able to say, hmm, isn't that something? The universe just shrank by about 10 billion light years. <laughs> yeah, because God just brought it right back in on itself. That's what I think would happen. It's up to you how you see it from there. But wasn't that a fun talk we just had? Amen. Verse 13. As I watched, I heard an angel that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet's blast that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. Have you ever seen like a, a fight going down and then maybe the, you know one person loses and then like his brother comes to the fight or his friend comes to the fight and then everybody's like, Ooh, now you're in trouble. Look at so-and-so. They're coming, you know. This is kind of what's happened. Not that they've lost the fight, but it's been bad up until this point. But now the angels are like, whoa, watch out. Look at what's coming here. Y'all ain't ready for this. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody say, whoa. Three woes for the three last trumpets. And they're coming down hot and heavy right here. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now notice this once again. How can I believe in falling stars? There's three answers to this. I can believe, once again, the Lord has brought in the universe, and a star is much more closer now than it used to be. Number two, I can believe in a miracle that, boop, here comes a star, and now it's falling. It just came from God's uh, creative power at that moment. I have just created a little star, because we know most stars are bigger than our planet, but here's, here's a bigger star, and it's just coming right at you guys. He can just create it out of nothing like he did with the original universe. Or number three, I think a star, like a shooting star, is an asteroid or a comet. How many think that's pretty sensical? We live in the 21st century, and we call them what? Shooting 
stars. And we're really smart, and we still use the terminology. Why do we use that terminology, shooting star? Because it looks just like a star that's shooting across our atmosphere. Now, this brings up another question, and hopefully we'll kind of move from the science part of this. But now the kind of person who was listening to us, let's say this was your atheist friend or your family member, they'll give us a little bit of credit and say, wow, that was some tap dancing you did, and wow, you sure made science fit into your Bible. That was impressive. You stretched it a whole lot, but I'll give you credit for trying. But now they might say something like this, why not just call it an asteroid? Why call it a star? And why is it when Jesus is on earth, he doesn't every now and then just slip in a little bit of modern science like, hey, bacteria is a thing. Use soap. Hey, God wanted me to tell you that. Or, hey, here's a little MC, uh, E equals MC squared. Let me just throw that your way. You're going to want this later on in life, okay? Why doesn't Jesus come around like, uh, what's his name, the science guy? Bill Nye, the science guy. Why isn't Jesus in a lab coat just every now and then throwing us some, some futuristic knowledge. It's because that's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of God was not so that we could be better scientists. It's so that we could be better sons and daughters of him. That's the point. The point isn't he's going to teach us how to fly. Like, hey, hey, give me some papyrus. I'm going to make a paper airplane and throw it across the, the Last Supper. Hey, figure this out. You'll be ahead of your time, you know? You know, it's, uh, seriously, it's not like he's going to be like uh, the guy from Back to the Future. I keep getting these examples. I'm having fun with it. It's not like he's going to be like the guy, the scientist. What was the scientist's name? No, the scientist. Doc, thank you. Doc, it's not, it's not like he's going to be Doc in the middle of the Bible ages making a combustible engine, you know. You guys are going to want engines one day. Take a look at this. Why is that not ever coming up in the Bible? Why, why aren't the prophets talking about these things? Why isn't Jesus talking about these things? Why do they always just focus on the matters of the heart? Because the matters of the heart are the heart of the matter. Everybody get that? The human heart is what is at matter. It's the problem of the human race. We don't need more science. Science is great and it works, but how many know you can be the smartest scientist and still go to hell? How many know you can have all the knowledge that we have on our phones and our computers and still live an empty life? So just, just think about it for a second. You now know about the wonderful world of combustion. Does it change who you are? No. Many of you have studied E equals MC squared. Has that changed your family and how you love your children and go through life? Many of you know about the power of flight and aviation. Has that changed you? You know about bacteria. Has it changed you? You see, once we fell, the Bible says now death was upon us. So yeah, it's cool. We can do things with science and God gives it to us. It's all thinking his thoughts. It's, it's wonderful. We can understand more about bacteria. But we're still appointed a day unto to death. So even if we could expand the life expectancy of a human to 200, you're still going to die. And what Jesus and the Bible is doing is preparing us for the life after this life, which is going to be longer. God's goal for us, and this is why, first and foremost, we are not humanitarians, though we believe in the good of humanity. But we're not, first and foremost, humanitarians because we know the goal of this planet isn't just to be better humans. The goal of this planet is to be better sons and daughters of God.
It's to be who he made us to be in his image, accepting his grace, obeying him, and that this world is going to be judged and be transformed in his, into his eternal world, which brings up the subject of what will we have in the world to come? Natural medicines, the glory of God, plus the modern sciences. Will it look like, like Asgard or Asgold, wherever Thor is from, a little bit of both mixed together? I don't know. I mean, there's trees and there's, the leaves are healing for the nations and the Holy Spirit is a tangible river going through it and there's a lot of things that are happening. It may be a mixture of technology and glory because it all comes from God. But I know this for a fact, that God is not here to try to give us more innovations and to give us more of the things that we would call technology and medicinal things. We are here to grow in our wisdom and knowledge of those things, but first and foremost to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's why they do go hand in hand. When you seek God and his righteousness, you'll be better at building cars. You'll be better at medicine. You'll be better at those things, but you'll have your focus on where it really counts. And so now going to this, having said this, what do I think a shooting star is? I think a shooting star is an asteroid. I think if John tried to explain to them the difference between an asteroid and a shooting star, he would have to say, see footnote number 25, and then take the next 10 years to write a physics book to explain the entire thing to them. And then once again, what would it even mean to them if he called them all up to that knowledge? They would do just what we're doing in the 21st century. Oh, so it's an asteroid that comes from a star from millions of light years away, and then it enters our atmosphere, and as it gets heated, it becomes light and then it disintegrates as it comes to the earth. And so now guess what we're going to call it? A shooting star. So after the entire knowledge is given to us, even in the 21st century, we still call it a shooting star. So John, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, just says, there's a star that comes to earth. And then some real smart people later on are going to figure out the way it's a star that comes to Earth because isn't technically an asteroid, a comet, a meteor, a part of some star or planet or planet that once was a star that exploded that, you know, became a planet or planets becoming stars as they explode. And all of this, you know, stuff in the universe is shooting back and forth. Yes. But now watch what happens. This is where you got to stop and go, I believe in a super or supranatural God. Because this star hits the earth, and then out of the earth comes some things. Watch this. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, some people may say, if the star has a key, that must mean it's a personality of some kind. Maybe the key is being held by an angel, and we're calling this star an angel, and then now all stars are really angels. Does everybody get that? That's what Islam actually teaches, that all stars are shining angels. And one day, those angels are going to come here, and that's really what stars are, is they're angels. And they shoot rockets, and their rockets that they shoot at each other like arrows are the asteroids. See, that's superstition. That's not what we have to go with here. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. What I take that as the key, the coordinates. That thing is coming down with the coordinates or the key to hit right at the right place of wherever these creatures are at. And that's what I think happens. Let's keep going. Verse 2, when he opened the abyss, 
when he, by, by, by terms of the star crashing into this, and I know there's a he there, and people may want to call that, uh, you know, an actual angel. That's up to you. But I just believe that it's this giving that, you know, masculine understanding because we're also going to be told a star has a name called Wormwood, and that's pretty much the description of a star. I don't see how that could be stretched to an angel. Let's keep going here. When he, the star, opened the abyss because he had the right target, boom, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a giant furnace. So they understand that something big hitting the earth, it's going to cause an explosion. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And we know if an asteroid was big enough to hit our earth, it could block out the sun. The sun and sky will darken by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, what came? Locusts came down on the earth, and they were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. So here we go. It's a big explosion. And then as the smoke is rising, the locusts from the abyss are rising with it. And so like you're seeing them with the smoke, and then poof, they come down upon the earth. At this point, you have two choices, and both, once again, can be reasonable. Is this a miracle of God happening in the moment that now, boop, I'm creating these locust-like creatures, which we'll discuss what they are in just a moment, or are they there literally right now? And it seems like they interact with us physically, so that means they can sting us and do different things, and spiritual creatures can interact with us physically. We've seen that all throughout the Scripture. Not time to get into it right now. So you you can believe that these creatures are created at the moment of the explosion, so God creates them. Or they are there right now. So some coordinates on earth, if you're like me, and I do believe they're there right now, there are some coordinates on earth where there are spiritual beings being held. And when that star comes and hit its coordinates, those things are going to come out. Now, the second thing that we have to ask ourselves is what are these? Are these an insect creature called a locust that are some bad mamajamas? Look at what they're like. They sting like scorpions. They're told not to harm the grass or the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their heads. And this is why now I believe nobody is saved except 144,000. Unless you're going to believe you could become a Christian. I know you can become a Christian during this time. Don't get me wrong, but I believe most have been martyred by now. Unless you believe now, you as a tribulation saint can get stung by these these locust creatures. And I don't believe God would allow his children to go through that in any age because it shows how he even protects 144,000. What I believe has happened, tying it with last week's message, is that the the majority of the church is in heaven. That's where we see them around the, the throne. Then these things start happening, and there is a time of preaching the gospel with these 144,000, and then a great persecution comes. Those folks begin to die off, and then now the only ones that are saved and protected are the 144,000, and God is just dealing with them to be the remnant and keep his promise to Israel. That's why Romans says all Israel will be saved. I don't think there's anybody else here. That's my personal opinion, okay? You can think through that on your own. But let's keep going to who they are. They were not allowed to kill them, the people that they're torturing, but only to torture them for five months, and the agony they suffered was like that of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek out death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. How many know that will be bad for them? They won't even be able to commit suicide. And the reason why I believe that is is because I think the stinging numbs them. So like, it's like, I want to die, but I can't even lift up a knife. I can't even hang myself, but I'm in 
agony right now. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit more about who they are. The locusts looked like, now here come the similarities, uh, the similes, the analogies, looked like horses prepared for battle. Their heads were like something, uh, you know, that they wore something like a crown of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair. So that's probably, you know, saying it's long. And their teeth were like lions. They had breastplates, like the breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into a battle. And then what do people think? What does that sound like? Helicopters. So people think these might be helicopters. I'll tell you why I don't think that's, that's happening here. That, that would be a third option, but I have two other options here. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had stingers. Uh, their tails had stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is destroyer. Everybody get this. Come on. They could be helicopters, and this could all be an analogy of futuristic warfare. I don't think that fits the context because what in the world, uh, you know, why would you fit that in? How could you fit it in, rather, to the explosion happening on the earth and them coming up from the earth? It just doesn't make sense. You're taking now too many things allegorical, and then once you go down that road, everything's allegorical, and I try not to do that in the book of Revelation. So I think there's two that we can keep as you're following my interpretive principles. You can use your own, obviously. My interpretive principles is to take it as is. They're locusts. But... I have a little bit of a problem with that because they're not just like the locusts of that, you know, that God used with Egypt. They are described like some bad mamma jammas. They have the face like a human. So what do I think the other possibility is? They're either jacked up insects or they are demonic spirits. It would fit together, wouldn't it? Coming from the earth. And they are spiritual locusts. Not physical, but spiritual. That's why they've been down there. I don't know. Which way do you want to go? Physical insects that are led by one demonic spirit named Apollyon or Apollyon, the demonic leader, leading the horde of other demonic spirits who are called locusts, because you can call anything a locust, right? There are cars that we call a Mustang, and it doesn't go, how many know that? But that's a Mustang, isn't it? Are you guys tracking with me? We call things by different names. So they could be called locusts, but, but not actually be the insects. Here's what I want you to know. The church cannot be here for this time because only the 144,000 are protected. But notice this, the 144,000 can't cast out these locusts. The locusts are roaming the earth for months. So just think about this. Whatever they are, they are huge like horses with faces like people. So whether they are like an alien-type creature walking around, you know, looking for people to sting with their tail, and they're literally just an insect that is crazy, or they are demonic spirits. But either way, a person on the planet at this time can't look at them and go, go in Jesus' name. And if, if, if that's not bad enough, the Apollyon is walking around as the demon king, the locust king. And you're going to see, and I keep saying you, but you know, the person here, no, God forbid if it's you, right? Uh, but anybody who's left here will see it. And they will not be able to look at a Apollyon and say, go in the name of Jesus. Get off this planet. I have authority over you. Why? Because the church age is over. God has no longer given us the power, given those that power to do that. So the 144,000, yes, they're protected, but they have no authority over it. They have to watch it go on. 
That's why, once again, as we get into some scriptures at the closing today, I say if you want to whoop the devil, you better whoop on him now. Because if you're left behind when this all happens, even if you are a person that believes you go through the tribulation and thinks you will not be able to have authority over these creatures, whether they be spiritual in nature or insects controlled by the spiritual demon Apollyon, you will have zero authority over them. You will watch them afflict people. How many want to afflict them now? In the name of Jesus, how many want to do warfare on them? How many want to wake up this morning and say, devil, I'm coming after you? Like David, come on, how many want to get a slingshot and come after Goliath and say, I'm running at you, boy. What bumps in the night better watch out in my house because I bump back, baby. You come stumbling up in here, rawr, I'm a pallion. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you to leave my house. How many going to cast out a pallion if he tries that here? Come on, somebody. How many believe in demons getting cast out? And they shall cast out demons. Hallelujah. That's the power of the church and the church age. What wakes us up and scares us, man, that should stop when you become a Christian. Scare that thing back. Start speaking in tongues and say, devil, thanks for reminding me. I got to pray and intercede and break your strongholds over this city. You come messing with my family, I'm going to pray for my family and 10 other families before I lay my sweet head back down to sleep. Praise God. We're not afraid of a pallion, the destroyer. We destroy the destroyer right now in Jesus' name. The first woe has passed. The two others are yet to come. And here's where we'll end today. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. We heard that before, but it, it, that language similar, but it was a voice from among the four creatures in Revelation 6.6, 6, and I believe that's the Holy Spirit. We've seen that the seven spirits of God are among uh, the Father and the Son, and I believe they are, the Holy Spirit is speaking. The seven manifestations of God are there, and they are, uh, the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so he says now, listen, this is what I'm going to tell you. And it, it, this voice comes out, and it says, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And I believe these are fallen angels because good angels aren't bound. How many believe good angels aren't bound? And remember, I talked about angels, and they can be spirit beings or earthly beings. You're an angel if you're a good messenger. You don't turn into a different kind of being when you die. Uh, these angels are spirit messengers, and they don't have wings either, but they were originated from heaven. We are messengers on earth, the Bible says. And then there are messengers of the enemy, fallen angels. Those angels are uh, being used for God's purposes. And look, he bound them up by this river that runs through the Middle East there. He releases them. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. When do I think they were bound? I think they were bound sometime between Noah and the Tower of Babel. There's a whole other story about the Nephilim. Everybody say the Nephilim. Ooh, the Nephilim. If you guys want to go deep into the Scripture, see if demons could mate with humans and make giants. There are a lot of scholars that I like that agree with that. I'm half on, I'm, I'm really 50-50 on it, but I know that they were punished and some of them were bound from those days. The Bible says even in Jude and Peter that they've been bound. And so here, four of them that have been bound are now loosed and what they do, notice verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 10, 10, times 10,000, that's 200 million. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million times it by two. 200 million. I heard their number. 200 million. 
The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Now, guess what I believe this is? I believe this is modern warfare. Why? Because it says they looked like this. It doesn't say they are this. It says they look like this. And the previous part says they're locusts, and then they look and act like this. So I was stuck with, are they literal locusts like, you know, uh, insects, or are they locusts like spirits? But now I have the permission to insert a little bit of the, you know, the metaphorical analogy here. I'm going to take it as modern warfare, and we'll tie it together, but see how you take it. You might just say that these are creatures, again, that are demonic, 200 million creatures, but I believe this is an army. Their breastplates were fire red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. So they have red, blue, and yellow as their flag colors. Watch out for a nation with those colors. Does Lithuania have those colors or something? Some European country, I think, does. But be careful who you think is the, the 200 million man army, okay? I think this is a nation created during the time of the Antichrist. And we'll be getting into that next week. We'll see a, a clear outline of how the beast comes to power and the different nations. And I'll have all those things ready for us. And out of their mouths, see, look at this. The heads of the horse Horses looked like lions, and out of their mouths came f fire, smoke, and sulfur. How many, how many believe that sounds like missiles, gunfire, those kinds of things? That's what I think. Now watch. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues. The fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. So they're shooting these things upon the earth. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails were like snakes having heads, which were, uh, allowed them to inflict injury. And once again, shooting from the tails, shooting from the wings, shooting from the mouth, wherever these planes and helicopters and modern warfare are shooting from, that's how he's describing it. And it says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. Now notice, all we have described in these portions, and this is just a little friendly nudge to my mid-trib to post-trib friends, here's a little friendly nub, is the 144,000 and all the unbelievers. Where's the church? Where's the Christians? Where's the non-144,000 uh, from all the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Because that would be a large number, even if you still had people getting killed and martyred. And so I believe all that you have left by this time is whoever is remaining of the 144,000, because they've been, you know, some of them have been getting martyred, uh, whoever is remaining of them, and the rest are all serving the Antichrist. It says they still do not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. That's why I think going back to those locusts, I think they're demons because I believe people start to worship them out of fear so they don't get hurt. And the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So when judgment is upon the earth, all these trumpets have been, have been sounded. And even before that, all the seals are are the rebellious repenting? Are they saying back to the God of the Bible, you, you know, you were right, we were wrong, forgive us. No, they're actually acting further in pride. And so God is going to be continuing to judge them as we go forth. But here's something I want to encourage you with as Vinny comes, please, in closing. Like I said, I started from uh, the beginning with this. This is the time now to give it to the devil and to have authority over him. Look at what Jesus says after the disciples came back from casting out demons. They were so happy. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now remember, there are basically three heavens. 
There is the heavens where God is at and his throne is at. Then there is the spiritual realm of the heavenlies that rule over this earth, and there's battles up there. What Jesus, I believe, is saying is that he saw Satan fall from God's presence and throne to the place of the war, where the war happens. But then in the book of Revelation, we're going to hear that now Satan is cast into the third heavens, which is directly to our universe, to be seen and to walk into Rome, and he will know then his time is short. So just like Apollyon has already made his presence, known. There's going to be a battle and then Satan with the third of his angels are all going to be cast out of that heavenly realm, that spiritual realm into the natural realm and the Bible is going to say look out because he knows his time is short. He's going to unleash hell on his side as well and that's going to lead up to the battle of Armageddon. But Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and what? Scorpions. What did the locusts have the power of? The power of what? A scorpion. And to overcome how much of the power of the enemy? Come on, how much? All the power of the enemy. Does he ever take back that promise of all? I don't believe he does. The church age always has all power over the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 says, for, we, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Hallelujah, somebody. Come on. And finally, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. And where? The heavenly realms. They can't come here as long as we are here fighting against them in Jesus' name. We send them back to where they came from every time they try. We fight them up there and say, stay back, Satan. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The bride of Christ is here today. Don't be on this planet when the trumpet sounds. Be ready when the trumpet of rapture sounds so that you can watch the show from heaven above. Amen. Would you stand up and give it up for Jesus today, our great conqueror and king? Amen. As you stand, would you just say, thank you, Jesus. Band and altar workers, come, please. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody praise God for being the victor today. Praise God for giving you authority over the enemy today. Praise God that no weapon formed against you shall prosper, that you will have authority over these spirits. In the name of Jesus, if you are here and you don't know who Jesus is personally, I pray for you to accept him. Be born again right now. Don't be in a hurry to leave, even though we have to dismiss in a few moments out these side doors so second service can start. But listen, don't leave until you know you know Jesus personally. And if you are here in any condition of your heart, whether believer, non-believer, and you feel you're being afflicted by evil spirits, midnight nightmares, or torments of depression and anxiety that you sense are spiritual in nature, let us pray for you before you go. And for all of us here, may we decide once and for all to be warriors for Christ. For this is the time to fight back against the enemy. Father, I pray as we get ready to dismiss today on this wonderful Mother's Day 
that we would be warriors for you, Jesus. That we would be warriors for your kingdom and for your calling upon our lives. That we would not allow the enemy to take the land or take the ground or to take our families, but we would fight back in the name of your son, Jesus. That we would see victory over the oppression, victory over the darkness in this world. In the name of Jesus, quietly can we sing, the enemy's been defeated. Death couldn't hold you down, and we'll dismiss in just a moment. But if you need prayer for any of those things, you can come forward even now. We'll dismiss in just a moment, but just sing it out softly. The enemy's been defeated. Death couldn't hold. Come on. The enemy of depression's been defeated. The enemy of addiction's been defeated. The enemy of a broken family's been defeated. The enemy of fear has been defeated. The enemy of despair. The enemy of demonic affliction. We're going to lift our voice. Come on. Just a few more moments. The enemy. He's been defeated. Take authority today, brothers and sisters. Take authority over the enemy. Cast him out in Jesus' name. Know who you are and who your God is. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to formally dismiss you on Mother's Day. We love you and we believe that you have the victory. Can I get a shout for Jesus in this place? Somebody shout hallelujah. God bless you. We've got to dismiss so the second service can come in. Would you please use these side doors? But as you're dismissed, don't leave. Keep worshiping if you sense God is doing something. But you got the victory over the enemy today. Amen. We're going to keep worshiping, but you are dismissed. Second service, folks, come on in. We're sorry for getting a little bit late. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers.